Our Old Testament reading today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, 11 through 16. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits inequity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are in our third uh, week of Advent, and we are not yet at the manger, but we are on our way there. And so our sermon this morning is in the sphere of Advent and manger and Christmas. Our text this morning is from Luke 1.26, and, and I have to be honest with you, it, it, it can be challenging every year around this time as a preacher to find something that not only hasn't been said, but like you don't, you, you want to, you want to grab people's attention, you want people to experience a sense of Advent and in a, in a fresh and powerful way, and um, it is challenging. And so I shared that with someone last week, and someone shared with me, they said, you know, you may think we all know the story really, really well, but the truth is uh, most people don't, and if they do, they have forgotten it, and so it's nice to hear the story read fresh each time uh, this year. So um, I hope my sermon this morning offers some new insights, and I've worked hard to, to draw out uh, elements of the text that maybe we haven't thought about before, but our text this morning is from Luke 1.26 um, through verses uh, 38. The word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her 
in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father, now we thank you for this word. We pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit to guide us through it. May our hearts be open to read and experience afresh the power of this encounter. May we be convicted and convinced by a truth and be transformed and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Flannery O'Connor, the novelist and essayist, was once asked who she thought the holiest Christian on earth was. And O'Connor responded, I don't know, probably some old woman dying of cancer in a village in India. What O'Connor was touching on is the fact that we think God is close to the famous, the powerful. We often think that God works through extreme giftedness or among the powerful and the well-connected. But time and again, we're shown a God who moves in and among those whom society most often leaves behind. God moves and operates on the margins. The very thing we want to avoid, being marginal. Pastor and author Kent Hughes describes Mary's likely marginal future before Gabriel descended on her home. He said, from all indicators, her life would not be extraordinary. She would marry humbly, give birth to numerous poor children, never travel farther than a few miles from her home, and one day die like thousands of others before her, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. It's not an insult to describe Mary this way, but it is, a, it is a tragedy that talk about Mary only happens around this time of the year, because in a very real sense, Mary is a template of God's ways in the world. The angel Gabriel brings this momentous news to a rural Galilean peasant, and she's the symbol For the people of God at that time, the nation of Israel was weary and downtrodden. They were once a mighty nation ruled by righteous kings like David and Solomon and thriving. They were the heirs of the covenants and the promises of God, but it seemed like the world had moved on from those days of prophetic and covenantal promises and expectations to Israel. Alexander the Great conquered their lands and established Greek as the culture and language. And then the Romans conquered the Greeks. And while keeping Greek culture, also instituted their own pagan practices. And for many people in Israel, it seemed like God himself had moved on. The prophets hadn't spoken in 400 years. A revolt against Rome here and there crushed, a wannabe Messiah and his movement put down as quickly as it rose up. Any hope 
of deliverance and salvation fizzling as quickly as it would emerge. And God, after 400 years of silence, picks up the story with his people, not with a bold public announcement, but quietly, humbly, privately. Nobody knew Mary's name. Nobody but God, of course. And it says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin named Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. Now, some people believe that Mary was free from the stain of original sin, that Mary herself was sinless and perfect, and that's why God chose her, because she was such an exemplary model of righteousness and holiness. But I'm not crazy about that view, and I'll tell you why. Not only because the text doesn't say that, the text doesn't say Mary was perfect, perfectly moral and righteous, she was favored, but if God favored Mary because she was perfect and stainless, like what does that say for us? What does it say for you and me? What does it say for everyone who isn't perfect? I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that God responds to people because of their perfect moral righteousness because that leaves me out. That leaves you out. It doesn't leave us with a lot of hope for God's favor. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that the word favor here is translated from the Greek word charis, which is where we get the word grace from. Sometimes it's translated as favor, sometimes it's translated as grace. And grace is not earned. Grace is not deserved. Daniel Darling writes, Mary didn't say, well, of course you choose me to bear the Messiah. I've worked very hard on my perfect moral righteousness. I've worked really hard to earn, earn this position, you know. I've kept all the Jewish laws and customs, and quite frankly, our family fits the qualifications and socioeconomic markers, you know. She didn't say that. No. When she hears that she's highly favored by God, the woman was shaken. She's shaken by this news. She's surprised by grace, startled to hear this message that God had highly favored her, no doubt thinking, what have I done to deserve this great honor? She was surprised that God even knew her name. And God knows your name, not because by golly, you've said all your prayers and you've been good for goodness sake. Not because you've earned it, but simply because of his good pleasure. And this is how we explain sort of our membership in the household of God is there is no way to explain it other than God's good pleasure to have mercy on sinners like you and me. There's no way to explain it. 
Because if you think for a moment, maybe I'm talking in abstractions, but I want you to think for a moment and think about your own past. So stop for a moment. I just want you to think about your life for a minute. Think about the things you've done that you're ashamed of, that you wouldn't tell anybody about. Things you've done in your past, things you've thought, things you've said. And it doesn't require more than a few moments to recognize and acknowledge that you certainly don't deserve God's grace and favor. I don't. We don't. But this is what it means that God is Emmanuel. He visits the lowly. The lowly of station and the lowly of heart. Sinners like us. God visits sinners. And he dwells among the broken and the contrite, not among those who seemingly have it all together. You remember Jesus said that the well were in no need of a physician. Jesus' ministry was spent among the riches of society, the people on the margins of society, the peoples who did not have it together, whose lives were a wreck. They were tax collectors, they were prostitutes, they were sinners, they were lame, they were poor, all of these things. And this is where Jesus spent his time. He spent his time among these people. Because, of course, in that day, and it lingers to this day in some sense, but in that day especially, the idea was that if you've got it all together, God must really love you. And this may be the most staggering and shocking news of the gospel story because unlike the Greek and Roman gods who's, who, who only consorted with the powerful and the important, Israel's God is comfortable with weak people, broken people. He's comfortable on the margins of society. Comfortable with people not just of humble attitudes but of low station in life. God is comfortable with these people. Mary learned that favor with God isn't earned, nor is it deserved. The angel repeats, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. The language here in the original is passive. It, it's, it's almost like favor has found her. She's found favor with God. She hasn't done anything to find it. Essentially, she has just found favor with God, not because of anything she did. And behold, he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Most people, I'm just guessing here, but at an encounter with an angel would have, you know, you know fallen over dead, right? They just froze on the spot, right? Um, but she starts asking questions. And she, start, she has a conversation with the angel. She's, she's of the presence of mind to have a dialogue with the angel. I'm a virgin. How's this going to work? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. She starts asking questions. And the reason she responds so positively, and this is just, I'm just, so just a disclaimer here. This is my opinion. This is not the result of, of sort of scholarly discovery, uh, but it's plausible. The reason she seems to respond 
without skipping a beat to an angel, it has to be because of her age. She's maybe 14 or 15, maybe 16. In the ancient world, fathers married their daughters off to eligible bachelors pretty young. And the bachelors were not usually young. They were often 10 to 15 to 20 years older because they had to be established and they had to have some means and income. But she's young and her faith hasn't become cynical like most people as they age. A few verses earlier in this same chapter of Luke, you may remember if you've read the story before, her cousin Elizabeth, who is quite a bit older, her husband, Zachariah, is, is in the tabernacle lighting incense, sort of serving, and the same angel appears to him, and he's incredulous. He's a lot older. He's cynical. He's just like, nah. No, I, I don't think so. He's cynical. And if you know the story, the angel says, you will be unable to speak until the child is born. Right? I mean, I guess the angel was a little irritated. But he's cynical. He's incredulous. And I guess the question to you this morning is, to sort of update the story for our purposes, and the application point to you is, are you cynical? Or do you believe in a God of miracles? Do you boldly come before God in prayer, or has your faith been neutralized by life's experiences and letdowns and disappointments? Has your faith fizzled out? Has it stalled out? Have you become cynical? Mary said, and this statement is filled with childlike faith, let it be as you've said, which is essentially saying, whatever you say. Mary, you will conceive of the Holy Spirit, even though you're a virgin. And this child will be that promised child, and God will give him the throne of his father, David, and it will last forever and ever, and he will reign over it. And she essentially says, sure, whatever you say. What would happen if we treated the promises of God like that? The promises of God, if we believe the promises of God, and when we read through them, we say, sure, God, right? Because on one hand, there's, there's, there's all this data of life's experiences which mitigate against faith and believing, right? There's experiences, there's letdowns, there's disappointments, and those are valid. Those should not be invalidated. But on the other hand, there is a sense in which we should say to ourselves, where is my faith? Does not the Bible command us to believe and not doubt? It doesn't mean that we don't experience doubts. We all do. But it means that we have to wrestle and fight and mitigate those doubts by reminding ourselves that the promises of God are sure. And God is faithful to keep his promises when he makes promises. And because we're fallen people living in a fallen world, even though we've been redeemed and filled with the Holy Spirit, we have this inner battle going on all the time where we are wrestling and struggling to believe the promises of God. 
And at one time in our faith, maybe, one time in your faith, maybe, you look back and said, there was a time when I said, sure, God, whatever you say. And now I'm finding it increasingly hard to do that. And if that's where you are, that's okay. But God encourages us. His promises are sure. His word is true. And he does command us to fight. He does command us to believe. He does command us to have faith. I don't believe that doubt is a sin, but I believe that it can sort of wreak havoc if it's not brought under control. When Jesus, when the man whose daughter was dying encountered Jesus, Jesus said, do you believe? And he says, yeah, I believe, but help my unbelief. Jesus didn't condemn him for his unbelief. But there is a sense in which, as the people of God, we are constantly in this sort of tug of war between doubt and between faith. And Mary said yes to the angel. And she's exemplary in that sense. Not because of her perfect moral righteousness, because she was so holy and perfect and born sinless. Mary was a human like anyone else. But because of the way she responded, Mary said yes to the angel. Again, Daniel Darling writes, Mary was saying yes to raising the Son of God. Because we might want to ask, well, what was she saying yes to? Maybe we haven't thought about that. But she was saying yes to raising the Son of God. Imagine that burden. Sure, I'll I'll raise the Son of God. Imagine her fear every time he got sick. Left home to play with his friends picked up a sharp knife in Joseph's carpentry shop. The responsibility of caring for this most important child will be staggering. Mary was saying yes to a lifetime of roller coaster emotions. She'd see him feed the multitudes, raise people from the dead, walk on water. She'd also see him in time be mocked, jeered, taunted, and even at times by his own family and hometown friends, right? When Jesus went around preaching in the area of his hometown, he was not received. And he quoted that passage of scripture, a prophet is not without honor except in his own home and among his own people. Imagine that, the son of God and people dismissing him like a lunatic. They thought he was crazy. I mean, imagine that, right? Like God incarnate and people are blowing him off. Yeah, this crazy guy over here. I imagine him experiencing that. And we just assume because Jesus was God in the flesh that he always had a stiff upper lip. But if Jesus was truly human, there had to be times where he was incredibly discouraged. Maybe, I don't, I don't know, maybe that's not the Jesus that we think of. But from all of my study, that is absolutely the Jesus that scripture gives us. That Jesus, who is fully human and experiences the full gamut and range of human emotions. Most of all, though, Mary knew what was coming. And so when she said yes, she said yes to what would happen to Jesus in the future. She may not have understood all that Calvary would bring, but she knew enough. She knew enough to dread that day that her son was unjustly put on trial by his own people. 
by her people. She knew enough to feel the foreboding sense prophesied by Simeon in the temple. You remember that scene when she takes Jesus and herself to the temple to present him and to, for her to experience ritual cleansing. And Simeon, this old man who had prayed, Lord, let me live long enough to see the Messiah. And when he sees the Messiah as an old man, he says, it's enough now, I can die. But he prays and offers a word to her that he be beaten. This anticipation that he'd be beaten senseless and hung on a tree, nails in his hand and a sword in his side. Every parent's worst nightmare. Every parent's worst nightmare to see their children suffer. And Mary would live in this most acute and agonizing way of life as she grew up with Jesus essentially as a young woman a teenager who had a baby. So this is what Mary was saying yes to. And yet she still said yes. There is a sense, I believe, in every believer that the road will be rough by walking this way, but somehow, some way, the blessings to behold the power and glory of God to be, to be beheld is, makes it all ultimately worth it. And I think we all have this innate sense. Anyone who continues in faith, in Christian faith, has this deep innate sense that no matter what's going on, no matter how bad life can get, it's worth it. And Mary had this sense that it was worth it. She said yes. And you know, today that same question is being asked of people like you and me, right? What will you say to Jesus? Will you say yes? Will you say yes to the Son of God who calls you to deny yourself and take up your cross as, and follow him as a humble servant? Now, in some ways, I guess it's kind of a moot point because, you know, someone of you could say, well, we're here, Jordan, aren't we? But every day we have to say yes, because that's what the walk and life of faith is. It is a daily taking up of our cross every single day, deciding to deny ourselves. But Mary is not just a symbol of humble servanthood or an emblem of Israel's oppression in the world at the time. There's something else going on. So the first part, I just unpacked sort of Everything that was entailed in Mary's encounter with the angel and her agreeing, so to speak, not that she had any choice, but her saying yes, but there's something else going on here. At the dawn of the human story, Eve, the mother of all the living, ate what was forbidden because she thought it would make her like God. That's what the text says in Genesis. She gave it to her husband, and after they, were tempted by, after they were tempted by the serpent, she gave it to her husband and she sinned. And that sin which Adam also partook of by eating brought consequences. Genesis 3 tells us what those consequences are. To the serpent, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, which literally translated means you're going to have a hard time getting along with your husband. And all the women said, Amen. But he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded, you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed now is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles. It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. In other words, to the day you die, the ground will fight you. Your work will fight you to the day you die. It will be hard work to bring home the bread and, and, and bacon. For out of the ground you were taken, and for, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Mary, who is the daughter of Eve, would bear in her womb the second Adam, who would come to reverse the curse that I just read, ushered on the human race and the cosmos by the disobedience of the first Adam. I want you to look at this picture. This is not meant to be a realistic export, uh, portrait of what Mary and Eve look like. It is an artist's rendering. But take a look at it. I hope it's, I hope it's relatively visible from where you're sitting. Take a look at that picture. Mary is consoling Eve redirecting her guilt-ridden head upward toward the baby inside Mary. In Eve's one hand is the forbidden fruit, but her other hand is upon Mary's stomach, reflecting on the fruit of her womb, who will one day defeat the sin and death ushered in by the first human family. Underneath their feet, if you look closely, is a snake who entangles Eve, but upon whom Mary is confidently stepping. Mary's obedience would lead to the end of Eve's disobedience. The nine months of awkward explanations, the lingering scent of scandal, the humiliating circumstances Mary would endure would all be worth it because of this, because of Jesus who would save his people from their sins. You know, the joy of Christmas is as much about Mary's surrender to God's plans for her as it is about the Savior himself. The fact that God invites little people like Mary into his redemptive plan shows us that Jesus' mission as the Savior of the world involves a partnership between the human and divine. While princes in our world and kings and rulers are figuring out global geopolitics, God is pleased to use little people like Mary, like you and me, to run the day-to-day -day operations of the kingdom of God. 
Have you ever considered that maybe everything in your life has happened exactly how God has planned it so that you can be right here, right now in this place in your life because it's exactly where God wants you to be, failures and all. Because Mary certainly had thought to herself, only if I was born to maybe noble lineage in a better place, in a better circumstance, to a better family. Even though she was a descendant of David, she wasn't experiencing any sort of royal or noble benefits, but she was exactly where God wanted her. Low station, some backwater region of Galilee, but she was exactly where God needed her and wanted her to be for this momentous occasion to bring about the kingdom of God through the King of Kings. May we all, like Mary, be able to say when the Lord changes our plans and makes our life conform to his own plans, say, like her, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. Amen. Father, thank you now. Lord, for this familiar story, but a story, O oh God, that encourages us to have confidence that no matter where we are in our lives, that you can use us, and you know our names, and we belong to you, and we're your children, not because we've earned it, not because we've merited it, not because we've been so holy, but by grace, according to your good pleasure. There's no way to explain it, but help us, O oh God. Enable us and empower us to say yes to your mission for us in the world as we carry out, as the people of God, the day-to-day -day operations empowered by the spirit of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.